Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Welcome to this December 2nd, 2020 recording of an Ask Me Anything conversation with Harvard professor Howard Gardner. Among other topics, we discussed his most recent book, A Synthesizing Mind, a memoir from the creator of Multiple Intelligences Theory. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Steger. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Thanks for joining us. My name is Gary Steger. Welcome to the latest Constructing Modern Knowledge Ask Me Anything session. I'm thrilled beyond words to be able to welcome our guest today. Howard Gardner is a polymath, an educator, a neuroscientist, a psychologist, a sociologist, author, musician, MacArthur genius. Harvard professor, one of the most influential thinkers about learning and cognition alive today. And I've wanted to get him to one of our events for a long time. And um, I'm quite pleased that he was generous enough to share some time with us in this online setting. He's the author of dozens of books, many of which you may be familiar with. His most recent book is this fabulous memoir called The Synthesizing Mind, which I highly recommend. There's a link to it in the email that we sent you along with the Zoom link if you'd like to get your own copy. I'm going to ask some questions based on my reading of the book and have a little bit of a conversation with with Professor Gardner, and then we'll have some time for some of your questions as well. We were discussing while we're setting up that neither of us have any particular wisdom or magic to offer on the subject of COVID. So I'm going to declare this a COVID-free zone for the next hour or so. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about larger, more timeless issues that can inform teaching and learning, regardless of the setting or the, the milieu in which you find yourself. Howard's delightful book, Synthesizing Mind, you know, could, could be described as a personal history of thinking. And I'd, I'd like to start by asking the question of, you know, do you think it's useful for people to trace the evolution of their thinking, to think about their thinking? And, and, and what did you learn from the exercise of writing this book? Well, I certainly wouldn't mandate that everybody should uh, <laughs> write uh, works like this. Um, my close colleague, Bill Damon, has just written a memoir. And in his memoir, he talks about a new field of psychology, which I hadn't really known about, called life studies. Um, and the idea of life studies is that regularly through life, you should be reflecting on what you've done. Damon is particularly interested in what projects, what life projects you set out on and taking into account what worked, what didn't work, and so on. Um, and I think it's a very interesting idea, but it's not something that I ever did consciously. Um, the, there were a number of different emphases for this book, but uh, I think the one that's neatest is that I've, for 40 years or more, studied other people's minds, and I've written lots of books with the word mind in it, um, but uh, I thought that maybe I should try to understand how my own mind works, uh, and in a sense, I realized for a long time that what I do is synthesize, though I didn't particularly use that term. But then Murray Gelman, a great physicist, uh, said, in the 21st century, the most important mind is the synthesizing mind. And I didn't know exactly what he meant, but since I thought that I was a synthesizer, and since he said it was important, I thought that would be a good enough excuse to explore what it is to synthesize. And we'll talk, I presume, what, about what it is um, but one of the claims in the book is that as 
computers and deep learning and algorithms and AI uh, get to do more and more of human functions, doing it better than most of us can do them, then it becomes important to understand what are the sorts of things that human beings may be better able to do than technology. And I'm going to argue that even though technology can be great help in synthesizing, the decision about what to synthesize and then when you come up with an answer, what to do with it, is that's a human burden. It's not something we should be downloaded onto any kind of a device. So there's a, as is often the case with books, there's a number of different motives in it. And I have my own speculations about why I became a synthesizer. Um, there's speculations because I don't have a control group, <laughs> but uh, it's been fun to try to figure out what it is that I do. <clears throat> Well, the the first half of the book or so is is, chronolo is chronological, and you you speak about your parents fleeing Nazi Germany and arriving in America on Kristallnacht, and then describe um, both an unfamiliar and, and familiar you know, immigrant story of your father becoming a laborer who never quite adjusted to life in the states and longed for the the homeland, but your mother embraced the United States and lived to be 102. You had a brother before you were born who died in a sledding accident, and he and the Nazis were unspoken of in your home, and and that created some conditions for your mother in particular to be overprotective, and you didn't have a lot of experience with sports, but you were engaged in a lot of pursuits of the mind and the arts, and you and our president-elect share something else in common, right? That you're both from Scranton. Um what and from until until a week ago we were the same age, but uh, he's he's edged me out. He's seventy eight now, and I won't be seventy eight till next year. Ah, arithmetic has a funny way of doing that. And you know, you mentioned this this study of, uh, or just mentioned did you say life studies was the the yeah. emerging field. Yeah, and I I, I suspect that. Um, one of the, the joys of reading a memoir like this is, is seeing yourself in, in the story. And, um, and you think about yourself by thinking about other people's thinking about themselves. And, you know, there were, I couldn't help but notice a lot of similarities from my, from my own experience, despite the fact that I didn't turn out to be Howard Gardner. Um, but we were both frequently bored with school. You loved the arts, found teachers we could be collegial with, um, were evaluated for what for being different or what might be called giftedness today. Um, when I was in the fourth grade, the recommendation of the August child study team in the school district was get him out of here. Um, <laughs> I, I found it that was about the extent to their, their recommendations. And I, I found it interesting that we were both told by various measures that we had remarkable clerical skills, um, which is a hideously wrong diagnosis, at least in my case. And I suspect you felt the same way. Um, I wonder I wonder what that is, what it is about that. And I was impressed that you published your own newspaper when it was hard to do so. I, I was involved in similar pursuits. And, and more importantly, you talk about the, the life of the mind and the synthesizing and the interest in, a, in seemingly disparate, disparate topics, connections, um, your own thinking about thinking and that, um, you weren't a great fan of traditional paths or categories or boxes or prerequisites. Um, before I ask the, la the, the next next questions, I, I was struck by the um, the story you told about having Stanley Milgram, the the noted psychologist, as a professor at at Harvard. And early on in the course, 
he accused him accused you of trying to destroy him by asking a number of questions. Um, I too had a similar experience. I was studying to be a jazz musician before my conspicuous lack of talent caught up with me. And I had an arranging class with a noted saxophonist and composer. And I asked him one question. I asked him a second question. And when I asked him the third question, he slammed the piano shut and screamed, stop trying to get inside my head. Hmm. Um, and, and, and in your tale of how, how Milgram eventually became uh, someone you, who you had a, a more positive relationship afterwards with, I think was, was interesting as well. Um, going back to your, so setting up the question, um, as a kid, you thought, and I quote, my mind was like a vast collection of information floating around without any strong lines between the lanes. And early on in the book, you do a beautiful job of building a model for developing a synthesizing mind, at least in your personal experience. By the time you got to, to Harvard, um, you decided to, to, to major in social relations, which was one of these sort of synthesizing disciplines that's had a major influence on your life's work eventually to be killed off by the institution. Um, can you, and, and the last point that I really liked that you made was that you said by, by graduate school, you decided to resist professionalism or be disciplined by any discipline. Can you, can you talk about this synthesizing mind about the, about social relations, about how you came to develop the skills and the aptitudes and the interests that have led to this, this quite fulfilling profession that you've, that you've pursued and enjoyed. Okay. Well, that's a very good uh, synopsis, maybe even synthesis of the book. So thank, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, when you're young, you don't have any academic disciplines. You don't know what it is to think historically or to think uh, psychologically or to think biologically. Um, but, you know, your mind is often like flypaper. You just pick up lots of stuff. Um, and uh, I was a, an avid reader, and I used to read encyclopedias. Uh, I had a one-volume encyclopedia, and I had a road book, and I would just sort of read it for fun. Um, but all that stuff was just in there, and uh, you know, disciplines have evolved to help you think more systematically, and I'm a great fan of the disciplines. I even wrote a book called The Discipline Mind, because you can't just have everything just flying around without any kind of organization at all. The danger is that the disciplines can become straitjackets. Uh, uh, they can mind, make your mind sclerotic. And I think this could be best conveyed to the audience, which I think is, is a quite sophisticated audience, that if you go to a, a liberal arts school, particularly as I did 60 years ago, you're sort of invited to take all sorts of courses and faculty are sort of interested if you're interested in them, and they give you a free free hand or free reign. When you go to graduate school, at least when I went to Harvard Graduate School uh, 50 years ago, uh, your job is to make you into a, a mini-psychologist or mini-economist or mini-historian. And even though I'm interested in all those fields, uh, I prefer to wander and to... Uh, go where my curiosity went. And in fact, one of my professors, I don't he's still around, I don't think he remembers it, tried to get me out, kick me out of school because he, he didn't think I was being properly socialized. Now, if I were dealing with a young person today, and I noticed some of the people here deal with young people, I would not encourage them to do what I did because I was very lucky to uh, 
resist professionalization uh, and still sort of land on my feet. Um, one biographical fact about me, which people haven't picked up on, is when I finished my doctoral studies, for 15 years I lived on grants, what we called soft money. Um, and uh, this was a time when it was not that easy, not that difficult to get funding, and I was a pretty good fundraiser, so I was able to raise my own salary. But I think unless you're working in a very unusual field like you know computer programming, uh, you're not going to be able to raise your own salary for years and, stu and study what you want to. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the path I took was one that, that worked for me, but it was a, in retrospect, it was a risky one because I didn't know where my salary was going to become, come from if I didn't succeed in raising grants. But it wasn't that risky because it wasn't that hard back in the 60s and 70s to, to raise grants. And then when the 80s came around and Ronald Reagan said, social science is socialism, which of course is nonsense. But as we know, presidents say lots of things that were nonsense. I said to myself, I better get a job. And I was lucky enough to have gotten a job. Um, once you get tenure, which is uh, the coin of the realm in the United States, then nobody can tell you what to do. So uh, you know, if I was working with a young student, I might say, you know, save your synthesizer until after you've shown that you can be a good developmental psychologist or a good behavioral economist or a good neurobiologist, and then do the synthesizing later. One other thing which I think um, it, it was prompted by your remark that when I was little I used to edit my own newspaper and in high school I edited the newspaper, is that synthesizing, I argue, um, is between journalism on the one hand and doing experimental science on the other. Um, in journalism, newspaper, uh, TV, radio journalist, you have an assignment or you give yourself an assignment and you have a deadline and then you do it and then you turn on, move on to something else. And you have no way, you have no time to do original research unless you do what's called long form journalism. This is the occasional article in the New Yorker, which sure. goes for 10,000 words and then a publisher gives you a contract for a book and you can do some research. But it's, journalism is not the same as the kind of synthesizing I do. On the other hand, it's also not what I did as, as a graduate student. As a graduate student, I learned how to do experiments in psychology, and I'm glad I did, and I trained my students to do experiments. Um, but synthesizing is not an experiment. You don't have a hypothesis, come up with an answer, publish it, and then move on to the next experiment. What it is is deciding what question you're interested in, what issue you want to puzzle through, then gathering as much information as you can, and that can take some time, and then organizing and reorganizing it. And I talk in the book about the different ways in which you can organize information, the different schema and the different approaches that one can use to take a, a bullet base of information and make sense of it. And then you have to test your synthesis out in other people because it may not work for them. It may not even work for you. Um, and like many other writers of books, and I'm a book writer more than an article writer, I've got boxes of syntheses which never got finished. You know, I decided to work on X. And for one reason or another, it didn't gel. Um, so those are both the rewards and the, the risks taken when you don't do journalism on the one hand or experimental science on the other. Um, 
The one other thing I would say, though I don't think I said in the book, I think of all the disciplines, history is probably the one that's most a synthesizing uh, discipline. And I started out in college as a history major, and Lord, I, what a lot of what I do now is history. Um, but when I took a tutorial in history, they were studying historiography, which is the study of how historians work. I now consider that to be fascinating, but when I was 19 or 18 years old, I didn't find that interesting, so I switched to this combination, as you said, Gary, of psychology, sociology, and anthropology, with a terrible name, social relations, typically shortened as to SOCREL, and it's amazing that it lasted for 25 years, it's such a lousy name, and such a stupid abbreviation. Such bad branding. Yeah, so, so where do you think we are in K-12 and higher ed today um, regarding attitudes towards multidisciplinary studies? Good question. Um, you know, I think if you read um, statements of reflective schools, um, certainly colleges, maybe secondary school, you'd see the word interdisciplinary. Um, but using the word, invoking the word, um, it's like the word constructivist, which you and I are both interested in. It doesn't cost you much to say it. Maybe it gets some people to say, gee, I'd like to send my school, my student to an interdisciplinary school. But interdisciplinary work is very difficult um, because you need to know enough about each discipline so you don't use it in a, you don't abuse it. Um, but then when you pick a problem to work on, it can be a scientific problem or a social scientific problem or a literary problem. You have to use each discipline in a way that's appropriate. Um, so when I finished graduate school, um, I decided for reasons we could talk about that I wanted to learn about neurology. And so for a few years, I became, in effect, a neurologist. I used to joke I was a neurologist from the neck up because I wasn't particularly interested in neuropathies in the, in the leg, but I was very interested in how the brain worked. But I studied uh, anatomy books and I went to neurology rounds and you know, I could, I could fake it uh, reasonably. And similarly, when, when we studied good work, uh, um, I decided to interview geneticists. And you know, I don't think I would have passed a, a graduate course in genetics, but I learned enough so I could talk intelligently to other geneticists. And I still follow work in brain science and the genetics. So I'm by no means an expert. So uh, short answer, to, long answer to a short question. The interdisciplinary card is easy to play, but it's very hard to cash in on. Uh, and so people who use the word interdisciplinary seriously have to show the whole is really the greater than the sum of its parts. You, you spoke of a false, I found really interesting, a, a false choice for students who, who have a specific talent. Like you had an aptitude for playing the piano and you loved to play the piano and you were pretty good at it. Where if I, if I read it correctly, you said that you either have to focus enormous amounts of energy and effort on developing that talent in a single-minded pursuit, or you could just be good at school, regardless of whether that requires a similar effort or not. Well, not, not exactly. Um, not exactly. Um, I was making a, uh, a point that in the United States, um, if you are a good student and you're good in the arts, people encourage you to work on your studies because they see more career possibilities, though my parents weren't pushy in that regard. If, however, you're good in an art form, but you're not very good academically, then people encourage you to continue painting or dancing or theater 
or playing an instrument because you're more likely to be able to make a, a living that way. Um, this is just a generalization. Um, but what happened in my case is, uh, as you noted, I played the piano and I had a good teacher. Um, he was in his 90s and he claimed, and I have no reason to, to his name was Harold Briggs. I have no reason to doubt this. He claimed he'd studied with Clara Schumann, who was the wife of Robert Schumann, composer from Germany, and from Edward McDowell, who was a great American composer. And to me, this is like saying I've worked with Aristotle and Plato. It made no sense. Um, but in fact, he was in his 90s, and this was in, in the 1950s, so he could easily have studied with both of them. The problem is when you Google students of Clara Schumann or um, Edward McDowell, you don't see Harold Briggs's name. But he kind of did with me what he could, and I was 12 years old, and he said that he said, now you really need to study in New York, and you need to practice every hour, three hours a day. Um, that meant to a young kid, um, I have to uh, go on a train or take a bus to New York or have my parents drive it. It took much longer to get to New York because this was before you had interstates. And then I could practice each day. And I said, I probably swore. I said, I don't want to do that. Uh, so instead, I just played for myself and I played with my first piano teacher who actually read some of this book and then unfortunately at 87 died. Um, and so I, it was a hobby in, instead. The other thing which I do believe is that I would have not enjoyed a life as a performing artist. Um, um, that's just not the kind of thing I'd want to do. If I could have been a composer or maybe a teacher of music or maybe even a broadcaster of music or a critic, I might have enjoyed that, but I would not have enjoyed, uh, you know, going on the road and, um, you know, having gigs. I think that would have, that would not have been. Enjoyable. That's the part I liked. The problem was I didn't like practicing. <laughs> um, can we, well, you, can we... you raise a good point because yeah. um, I was in the learning curve from roughly age six to age 12. I would have had to um, be much, much more punctilious if I moved to New York and studied with a name brand composer. And I might have run into the same problem there that I did in when I thought about graduate school and realized that you had a really total line. But we don't know. We didn't do the experiment. So if, if I could spend a, a, a couple of moments, you mentioned history, just talking about some history. I, one of the, the things I spend a lot of effort and time focus on is um, helping educators recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants and that um, our practice often suffers from amnesia and folks don't know the sort of great minds and work and precedents that come before us. So, so you've had a really f full career where you've been able to work with s some of the giants um, of education. And I'd like to just have you, have you discuss a few of those to help um, inform our audience a little bit. You, you worked with and became close friends with, with Jerome Bruner. Um, what, what should we know about him and his work? Okay. When you talk about uh, resistance, Gary, um, who are the resistors? Uh, or are you saying this is just a general phenomenon? It's, I think it's just a general phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that any idea that's that's more than you know three months old sort of just evap has evaporated. I, I don't I don't think it's a conscious effort as much as the fact that um, I, I, there's a synthesis. I'm going to well, 
Um, I'm going to share a little bit in a, a, couple, a little bit later when I want to talk to you about multiple intelligences. But um, I, I just think in general, people, you know, if I teach a, a doctoral course in educational leadership and mention any number of the names of people you study with or worked with or people we mutually admire, um, this sort of eyes glaze over and people just don't have any experience with the, with those ideas or, or those people's contributions okay. to their field. I mean, I think Americans have always been less interested in history than other Western countries. But I also think it's a more recent phenomenon and we could probably talk endlessly and as sure. older men, we could be very critical of people's lack of interest in the history and the background. But I, I, it, 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 it is a phenomenon. Um, for whatever reason, I had a gift for attracting mentors. And I, this is something I was completely unaware of, but <laughs> I had it. And mentoring is always a two-way, it's a two-way street. On the one hand, if you're young and you want to learn, it's obvious that it's good to have mentors, whether they're piano teachers or academics or coaches or whatever. But mentors have to see something in you to want to continue mentoring. And whatever it was, I, I don't think it was my beauty or my charm, <laughs> but I, I attracted a lot of uh, mentors. And many of them are, are friends of mine till today. You know, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, who are mentors who are older than I am. But uh, Jerome Bruner was a, a brilliant, charismatic uh, psychologist who was one of the people who invented cognitive psychology, a field that we now take for granted. Um, but in the 1960s, he became very interested in education for reasons we could you know, talk about. And I was lucky in 1965, when I was looking for a summer job, I went to work for Jerome, then called Jerry Bruner. And I'd never thought about studying education uh, um, as a field, though I'd often thought about becoming a teacher, because when you're young, that's one of the options that you know, like a fireman or a nurse or a doctor <laughs> or whatever. Um, but Bruner was creating a, what we could call a synthesizing curriculum. It was called Man, a Course of Study. Now, nowadays, uh, you know, we would be very criticized for calling something Man, a Course of Study, but it was a totally generic name there. And people who don't know history would be unfairly criticizing Jerry for having given that name. But it was a brilliant synthesis of social studies for kids who were in fifth grade. Um, and this um, curriculum, which I worked on with many other people, um, was funded by the government. And in the 1960s and early 70s, it was widely used. My children in Cambridge went to a school called Shady Hill, where they did man a course of study. Full stop, in a preview of what everybody who's from the United States knows now, uh, this became a political football. And in a sentence, the right wing cut out, um, suspended, cut off the funding for manic course of study. For why? Because it was seen to be secular humanist, because one of the things they showed in manic course of study was that Eskimos, when people get to be old, um, they're put on ice flows, F-L-O-E-S, and they're allowed to go out to the uh, to see and die. Um, I actually happen to think that's a wonderful idea. Um, and certainly, Bruner wasn't trying to sell that idea. He was trying to give people a sense of how culture works and how cultures have different norms. But uh, Bruner and his uh, 
colleagues were accused of um, secular humanism. And as Jerry um, quipped, we never solved the problem of getting from Widener to Wichita. Widener was the Harvard Library where many of us worked in Wichita, where we know how where, where, where Kansas stands on, on these issues. I don't mean every Kansan, obviously, but uh, you know, where the, where the state. but Bruner had but Bruner had some very specific views on curriculum and instruction. Right. Fair. Good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I got caught in the romance of writing curricula and testing it out. Um, and uh, I belonged to something called the Instructional Research Group, where we tried to see whether what the kids had been taught was actually understood. And I found that fascinating uh, intellectually. And it led me just a year or two later to you know, join an education research group called called uh, Project Zero. Yeah, um, let me give a little context if, you, if this was a... Sure, I was going to ask you about Project Zero. So anyway, you want education to... course, and the students said, well, what did Bruner do in education? Um, as a cognitive psychologist, um, Bruner uh, allowed psychologists to think about the mind, um, which had been ruled off limits by behaviorists who thought it was only important that you looked at the behavior of people and not that you tried to understand what their thinking was like. And Jerry was very interested in developing the theory, the thinking of young children. Um, and his great claim, which I know you know, Gary, but other people may not, was that you can teach kids the structure of a discipline, whether it's history or mathematics or anthropology in the example I gave about the, the Netsilic Eskimos. And you can teach it to kids in a way that's intellectually honest, even when the kids are very young. Uh, and so you can give kids a sense of what it's like to think mathematically by giving them the kinds of puzzles and problems that mathematicians deal with, like why don't two lines ever meet, you know, things like that. Um, or you can give them a sense of history by finding an old document and say, how do you make sense of this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the most famous uh, line in his famous book, this process of education is uh, you can teach any subject to any child in a way that's honest and intellectually useful, and the child will understand that. Now, I think that's a great exaggeration. It's hyperbole. You know, you can't teach nuclear physicists physics to a six-year-old. But the idea of exposing kids right away to the kind of thinking that serious people do is a tremendous gift. And I know, Gary, that you and I. Uh, have been very attracted to the schools in northern Italy and Reggio Emilia, and completely unexpected, um, Jerry, when he was in his 90s, uh, discovered the schools in Reggio Emilia, and he used to go there every year because he felt that the kind of education they did there, a very constructivist education, also one that's very much communal-based, was the best education he'd seen. And this is from somebody who'd spent 50 years thinking about education all around the world. So he's a very inspiring figure. Um, and there is available lots of stuff uh, on the internet, including a series which he did, which I also did, where they talked to prominent educators. And he's probably 98 at the time, and Sharp is a, is, is a tack. Um, I, so. I only met him once. I had hamburgers in his apartment when he was 99. <laughs> and... And I don't think he liked me very much, which was all well and good. Um, 
but but what was interesting was the number of times maybe, maybe you didn't like the hamburgers <laughs> perhaps um the it, it, he told the story several times as one is wont to do when you're 99 years old um about building and racing boats on the hudson as a boy and ha what a seminal experience that was in his development and I, I thought thought it was lovely and, and consistent with the kinds of things we've been talking about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Project Zero? I know it's it's 50 years old. You've been involved for 30 years. No, I've been involved for 53 years. 53 yeah. years. That's I, I was the co-director for 28 years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so what's it about? How has the work evolved? What's it currently focused on? Good. Well, this will give me a chance to tie some things together, Please. which we talked about. Um, as we mentioned, I was a serious pianist, um, and particularly after college, where I spent a year in England, I got very involved in theater and visual arts and dance, and you know, I've, arts have been very important ever since. When I began graduate school, I studied developmental psychology, which is a field of Bruner and Piaget and Vygotsky names, which I think will be known to the people that are, are tuned in. Um, I realized that all the development psychologists thought that being developed meant becoming a scientist because they were part of an aspiring science named psychology. And so they thought if you were really intellectually developed, you would become a scientist. And having been very involved in the arts and knowing the arts are serious cognitive endeavors, and require thinking and problem solving and problem finding and et cetera, et cetera, I was frustrated. Then uh, in a graduate seminar, one of my professors said, well, there's this um, uh, professor who is starting a research project in the arts, and if anybody's interested, they should go see him. His name was Nelson Goodman. He was a very eminent philosopher. Unfortunately, I knew his name. I doubt that any of my other classmates did. These were the good experimental psychologist. So I went to see uh, went to see Goodman, who was a professor at Brandeis, and he was starting a research project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, a school, a school which I didn't have any particular connection with, on what he called um, the, um, the, the cognitive processes involved in arts education. And I said, well, I'm doing cognitive psychology a la Bruner. Bruner and Goodman were friends, by the way. Um, and I'm interested in the thinking that's involved in the arts. So why don't I join Project Zero? And I and a man named David Perkins, who was an artificial intelligence uh, student at MIT, actually a student of Seymour Papert, whom I know that you knew. Um, yep. And Dave Perkins and I became beginning um, research assistants at Project Zero. Um, Goodman was a wit and he said, well, we don't know anything about this area of arts education, so we're gonna call it Project Zero. And I'd like to say that uh, Goodman didn't pay us a tradition which we have continued for 53 years, but that's not true. Uh, Project Zero is thriving now. It's 53 years of age. Um, there have been three new directors since Perkins and I stepped down, and they've each done a very good job. We've done about 25. Um, we have at, at any minute, at any moment, about 25 different research projects, most of which I don't know anything about. And there are about 50 people who work there, and it's wow. unique. There is no place in the world on soft money. Soft money means we don't get money from Harvard. <laughs> we, we give it to Harvard, 
the joke goes, Harvard doesn't give it, it taketh away. Um, and you know, I'm not complaining because that's how the university works. Um, but we raise funds to do research. And what makes us different from other groups is that we only take money if we don't know, we only take projects on if it fulfills two requirements. One, we really are interested in doing it. Two, we can raise money for it. So we won't do something if we get money for it if we don't aren't interested in it. And even if we're very interested in it, if we can't raise money, we can't do it because we have to pay his salaries. And um, this is a little bit inside That's baseball. That's the point I've, I've missed. This is inside baseball. If you walk across Harvard Yard and you ask people what Project Zero was, they wouldn't know because Harvard Yard is very far away from the School of Education. But if you went to educators in India or China or Latin America and you said Project Zero, they'd all know about it. Um, and that's a statement about America as much as, and about the history, lack of interest that you described. Americans, we're great at doing what we want to do. We don't have much interest in what other people are doing. And that's very bad in education. Um, one of the most important books in education in the last uh, 10, 15 years is Posse Salzberg's book, um, Finnish Lessons, F-I-N-N-I-S-H, yeah. about all the stuff in Finland, which was so effective based on American research which the Finns paid attention to, but in K-12 education, not many people in America pay attention to that research. So that's Project Zero, and that, I was, so, that was my way of being able to combine my interest in the arts. I should add that we still do work in the arts. My wife, Ellen Winner, at Project Zero has spent her life working on arts issues, but we work on all sorts of different things now. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you could indulge me for a couple of minutes to talk about multiple intelligences to answer a few questions that may be um, unremarkable or perhaps perhaps unique. But again, in this sort of spirit of making sure people know what they should know, um, how, how would you explain multiple intelligences to your aunt or uncle at Thanksgiving? <laughs> well, not this year, right? Yeah, right. In a, in a non I always say the good and the bad thing about MI, as people call it, is you can summarize it in a sentence. That solves the aunt and uncle problem, but it also invites lots of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. I'll do it in two or three sentences. Okay. Um, the word intelligence implies that intellect is one thing, and in the West, we assume that you can give people a test and figure out how smart they are in the discussion. And that's the IQ test or the SAT and other uh, you know, ETS kinds of instruments. Um, um, MI theory is based on interdisciplinary work, um, psychology, neurology, anthropology, etc. And it yields the insight that human beings are better described as having a number of relatively independent computers in their head, which we call the multiple intelligences. So classical IQ theory says you've got one computer. If it's good, you're going to be good in everything. If it's average, you're going to be average in everything. And if it's not good, no cigar. MI theory is immediately understood by teachers and by parents who have lots of kids because uh, just because you know somebody is good in math, you can't be, predict whether they're going to be good in music or in understanding other people. Just if somebody's bad in math, you can't predict if they're going to be good in language or good in finding their way around uh, an area or in understanding themselves. So MI theory is a claim that we have at least eight separate intelligences 
and strength in one doesn't predict strength or weakness in others. It makes a great deal of sense to educators. Uh, I'm almost never met an educator who thinks it's stupid, but psychologists don't like it for reasons we could talk about. All right. So what would you say to a, a school administrator or teacher educator who requires each of the intelligences to be addressed in a lesson plan? I'd say good luck. <laughs> um, no, I think everything. You know, this is commonplace, right? This is. I taught no, I a graduate think, school of education that required it for every every student teacher. I think that uh, I have never run into any topic which could only be taught one way. And most people, me included, tend to teach things the way we learn them, which is great for people who have the kinds of minds we have. You know, if you have children, you're more, their minds are more likely to be like your minds than the random case. Um, but that doesn't mean every subject can be taught in eight ways. Um, in a book called um, the, um, the Disciplined Mind, I took three topics, um, Darwinian evolution, the music of Mozart, and the Holocaust of the Second World War, and showed how you could approach it using different intelligences. And to me, that's been a model of how you can do it. But I would never say on any topic that you should teach it eight ways, but you should, te you should teach it in, in a few ways because number one, you'll reach more kids, but number two, this is the crucial insight. If you understand something well, you can think about it in more than one way. And if you can only think about it in one way, chances are your understanding is limited. Um, and, and there's also a, a tension between the difference between teaching and learning, right? That, that fundamentally what MI is, is about learning. It's not a pedagogical strategy. Well, um, let me edit that a bit. Um, okay. MI is really a, th a theory about how the brain and the mind is organized um, because I'm interested in education and so are all of you. Um, there are educational implications which follow both for teaching and learning. But as I describe in The Synthesizing Mind, we could take the same claims, namely that there are eight intelligences and we can produce 10 different kinds of curricula which are quite different from one another, and they might all be valid or they might all be invalid. The, the, I guess the way I would put it, going from a psychological theory to any kind of an educational practice is always a leap of faith. Um, and this is a more general point about science, particularly about brain science. I've spent years uh, trying to convince people of things without success, and one of the things that I've tried to convince people without success a brain, a brain finding on its own can never tell you what to do in education. It might suggest you try something rather than something else, but the brain is, is some meat in the, inside the skull, and education involves values and involves interaction. And uh, uh, I wrote a whole article which has gotten a lot of attention on neuromyths because uh, I think it's, it's, there's a mythology that there's such a thing as a neuromyth. It's, it's, it's too complicated to go from brain, brain functioning to, the, to, to learning or teaching. But that has to pass through psychology, and that itself is, is complicated. I know I'm waxing pretty... No, and, and, and some of it is about just doing the right thing by children and creating a, a productive context for learning at a place that it's lovely to be, to be a kid and, and that, that doesn't require a meat model to justify doing the right thing as a, as a human being. I mean, I, I find a lot of the criticisms of 
of multiple intelligences to come that comes from folks who call them cognitive sciences to be incredibly mean spirited and and kind of amoral in that it, it takes the the needs and proclivities and interests and talents and creativity of kids out of the equation and and believes that there's one way to deliver something into into the heads of you know unsuspecting unwilling subjects well i think um, that i would level that um um characterization more psychometricians people who really worship the iq test um i think the further you get away from them the more open people are and i one of my jokes which nobody laughs at is that mathematicians have been very critical of mi theory because they think there's only one way, one way to be smart namely to be a mathematician until they have a child who isn't learning math and then all of a sudden <laughs> they become great fans of mi oh my kid may not good in math but he's wonderful in poetry or she has tremendous understanding of other people or blah 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 so can, can you explain the difference between learning styles and, and multiple intelligence yeah i just don't like the term learning styles but i'm fated that mi is always going to be collapsed with it and you know when people ask me i explain the difference but i don't expect to be successful in doing so but since you ask multiple intelligences is a theory of what of the the computational powers of the brain and the mind and rather than there being one computer there as i said we got a bunch of different computers and some may be strong some may be average some may be weak that's what mi theory is learning styles is a claim that um learners particularly kids learn in one way and not the other i've never said that i don't believe it and what i hate about learning styles is this claim that people are auditory learners or visual learners because that's an intellectually incoherent um uh, position let me tell you why kids are often called visual learners because they can't read but for Christ's sake what is reading it's a visual tasks and also auditory language has nothing to do with music those are two different spheres the fact that somebody learns musically tells you nothing what they learn about language so not only is learning styles a stupid idea it's an incoherent idea nonetheless just like einstein probably dealt with people who thought relatives relativity theory was about people's relatives <laughs> you know i know einstein but i'm going to i'm to the fate that people think that, that that i believe in auditory and visual learning styles where i think that's total garbage are are the intelligences innate or are they a consequence of experience um yes <laughs> no you know i always say that i could play the cello every day of my life and i would not be like yo-yo ma you know i think there's a genetic loading for all of the intelligences which probably the highest for math and music and probably the lowest for the personal intelligences um but you know let's take 10 people with the same genes and raise them in 10 different musical environments if you raise them in hungary to finland where music is taken very seriously they're going to be much better than 90% of american kids where you know music isn't even taught in the schools um, so it's always an an interaction um and i think we will learn a lot more about the genetics of each of the intelligences and if the genetics turns out to infirm that is disprove 
some of my claims, you know, I will be very, I will be very interested in that. But what we're finding is the opposite. You know, IQ seems to be involve hundreds of different genes. So if IQ involves hundred different genes, you can just imagine what understanding other people does, or what being good with spatial relations does, or being musical. So I think it's going to be extraordinarily complicated to figure out um, the genetic, the nature nurture question that you're talking about. So I was doing a little bit of synthesizing that might be completely off the wall, but you, you know, you mentioned that um, MI emerged around the same time as nation at risk. And that, that may have had some peculiar um, synergies. Um, but I've observed actually around the same time, there were some other phenomena like the art of teaching was removed from teacher preparation. And all that was left was a lot of sort of mechanical stuff. Um, no longer were primary school teachers expected to learn to play the piano or put on plays or build, you know, puppet theaters or conduct science experiments in the classrooms. Things became like little graduate schools and the focus on, of teachers became much more on curriculum delivery and animal control. Um, and it also mirrored the sort of end, the waning days of the civil rights movement of school desegregation. And so I'm, I'm just one, you know, wondering what that sort of, all those those sort of disparate, you know, um, forces and discoveries and have to do with one another. And if there's any sort of coincidences or wisdom that can emerge from that. Well, I, I, like I like your question because it's a very good example of how the synthesizing mind um, poses a question to itself and then tries to answer it. So let's say the question you asked was, um, was there something going on in the early 80s that we could um, describe clearly? Um, and you then mentioned a whole bunch of things. And you know, somebody besides you would have to see how you put it together and decide um, you know, whether it made sense, uh, not just one person, but the number of different people. I'll use an analogy, which for those people who read the press will be very familiar now. Robert Putnam, who's a very distinguished political scientist, has just published a book called The Upswing, and it's gotten a huge amount of attention, deservedly so. What he claims, and when you first hear it, you'll think it's bizarre, is that the United States, on all sorts of indices, reached a high point in 1964. And it's been steadily downhill since. And you say, how bizarre, how bizarre. But he's got so much data in so many different fields that you have you know, to lay down and say, all right, Bob, you're right. Uh, the only exception would be, would be women's movement. And he says that that's an exception. That, that didn't reach a high point in 64, though Betty Friedan's book, uh, whatever it was called, uh, um, came out in 1960. The Feminine Mystique. So she was off, off by a year. Um, I think that um, well, the Frames of Mind wasn't written as an, an education book. Um, and so it was written as a psychology book or a cognitive science book, and nobody was more surprised than me that it was really picked up in education rather than in science. What I would say is that because of the nation at risk, which was a, a government report commissioned by Ronald Reagan because he wanted to get rid of the Department of Education, but it was a foolish commission because it ended up putting 
K-12 education on the front burner for the next <laughs> decade yeah. or two. I think it's, I think it's actually, it's ended with Betsy DeVos, which we could talk about. Right, 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 right. Evening. I completely agree uh, with you. That's a whole other discussion. Completely yes. agree. Um, so I think it put educa- books, books with educational implications got a lot more attention. Um, but whether they were reflecting just one thing or a lot of different things, that's, you'd have to do the, you'd have to do the spade work to, to, to convince me of it. But let me just raise a couple, a couple quick points, questions, and then, and then uh, be mindful of everyone's time, mostly yours, and, and let the audience ask a question or two. Um, you know, I think when I think about the intelligences, a lot of times we, we look at everything through the, through the lens of school or, or through, you know, vocation. And, and I think about how we confuse low skilled with low wage. You know, if I go to a, if I go to a tailor in Hong Kong or Mumbai and I show them a picture of something, I can go back two hours later and have a suit made that fits me like a glove that, that, that some guy who's making pennies, um, was able to execute. And it's, it's all sorts of things that people do in their lives. They're incredibly complex and sophisticated that, that you or I could never begin to, to, to accomplish. Um, and they're often thought of in a sort of condescending, inferior fashion because they don't pay well, but as opposed to, um, them being actually low skilled. Um, and, and I, I also, I, I, this is just something that I wonder a lot about. I'd be interested in your, your thinking. I've, I've not come up with a better word for this. And I recognize that, that the word is slightly pathological in English, but, but I, I'm thinking a lot about how optimum learning is often accompanied by obsession. obsession. And by obsession. I haven't found a better word yet. Maybe you have one. But whether, whether you're a seven-year-old who wants to know every species of dinosaur or you're a trumpet player who spends 13 years trying to make a B-flat sound perfect – I, I think the quality of the experience is quite similar, even though the period of it may change, you know, so that the seven-year-old um, paleontologist will go on to becoming an astronaut or a, a chef or something else two weeks later. But I think there's that red hot sort of, of intensity associated with learning that thing that they, that they're, that they're obsessed with. Do you, you have any thoughts no, on that, that idea? I think it's a very interesting idea. My wife, Ellen Winter, I think one of her students, Jill, is, uh, is tuning into this, um, studied gifted children. Um, and these are kids who are really gifted, not somebody who sure. manages to squeak out 121 on an IQ test. And she said they have a passion to master. And when I've seen kids who are gifted or particularly have read about them, because I haven't met that many myself, you know, you can't take, you can't tear them away from what they're interested in. Um, however, I mean, Ella would also point out that um, when you're gifted as a child, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a successful adult. It's, it's a different kind of phenomenon. Um, but um, I guess you're asking a somewhat different question, namely, um, is obsession uh, – and, and we have to dissect this. Sure. Is obsession in general a good thing? Is obsession with one thing a good thing? And does the obsession a young person – translator relate to stuff in later life. There's a footnote in the book, you might be able to find it, um, where I compare a book which says you should really focus on one thing. Uh, I think it's uh, 
a book by Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour stuff. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Post a book called Range. I think the guy's name is Epstein, who says you should do lots of different things. And I'd say there's more than one road to having a decent life. Uh, 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 and, you know, obviously, if you want to be Tiger Woods, you can't spend too much time learning foreign languages. Um, but, uh, you know, you may not want to be Tiger Woods. And certainly in business and politics, there's a lot to be said for people who have a rather wide range of interests because they can hire experts who may be very good at one thing, but it's up to them to see the bigger picture. And even though it, when I talk about synthesizing, I'm really talking about as, as somebody as a writer, I've been studying presidents now, and a good president has to do an enormous amount of synthesizing. Some of you are probably reading Obama's memoir, which I just finished, uh, A Promised Land, and what a president has to keep track of is just incredible. And I'm sure you're all thinking, and yeah, what about the current president? And we'll, we'll leave that for uh, another discussion. Wouldn't you think that people who are great, regardless of whether it lasts a lifetime, people who are great at something um, are able to identify the thing that, that bugs them and work sort of tirelessly until they debug it. And, and as they reach that point, the next challenge, the next thing that, that bothers them, that, that um, sort of reveals itself. Um, I'd say, I mean, if you were a doctoral student, I would say that's a very interesting idea. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we should, we, should, we should think about how we could disprove it. Because the way science advances, you put forth a hypothesis and then you try to show if it doesn't, doesn't hold water. You know, I studied um, seven great creators. I wrote a book called Creating Minds. And uh, Picasso was one of the people I studied. And he um, was painting from a very early age. But Martha Graham, whom I studied, dancer, didn't start dancing until her 20s. And Stravinsky, a great composer, didn't start composing until his 20s. So we'd have to go and say, well, what was, was, Mark, was Martha Graham obsessed by something when she was eight? Was Stravinsky? And, you know, I, I mean, I might I'm not, have I'm not making I'm not making a I'm not making a lifelong <laughs> hypothesis here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm wondering about. So learning learning anything well, whether it it leads to a, a, a career or a lifetime pursuit. That's what, we started. Um, we started with Bill Damon and his interest in life studies. If people in education know Bill Damon's name, it's because he's been the apostle of having a sense of purpose. And one of his disappointing findings, especially in the United States, only a small percentage of kids. Um, have a sense of purpose as he defines it, where it's something you care about and are really focused on, but also has to have implications beyond, beyond yourself. It isn't an obsession with your belly button. Um, and I think having a sense of purpose is great. And Bill and his wife, Ann Colby, who works with him, said to Howard, Howard, me of years ago, Howard, what's your sense of purpose? And I'd never thought about it before, but I came up with an answer which satisfied me. And it may be in the memoir, I forget. And then I've said, I've always been curious. Uh, and when I hear about something, I want to learn more about it. Now, was that an obsession? Uh, I didn't go you know, walking across the earth to find out uh, whether uh, <laughs> that ant, the ant was the same species the way E.O. Wilson did, or, or captured two bugs in his mouth the way Darwin did. But uh, I was curious. Was that an obsession? That's the definitional you know, 
Definitely. Yeah. Like I said, I think the, the term is imperfect, and so I'm I'm still struggling with the verbiage. Um, so if 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 you have a couple minutes to answer a few questions, I've got one from my friend Roger Wagner who typed it in the chat, and he asked, you know, what are your thoughts about the replacement of the term synthesis in Bloom's original taxonomy? Apparently, they've replaced synthesis with creativity in in the revised taxonomy. Bloom Bloom has been more prolific in death than L. Ron Hubbard. Um, <laughs> You have, you have any thoughts about that? Um, I don't have any thoughts about it, and it's been too long since I looked at exactly what Bloom meant, but it, he saw it as an apotheosis, you know, as a high point, and uh, um, I would I would agree. The point I make in the book, which I'm glad I can mention now, is psychology has dropped the ball on synthesis. Psychologists have contributed almost nothing to understanding synthesizing, and I know why. Because you can't simulate it in the lab. It takes much too much time. So in the last part of the book, I throw out some ideas about how to help people become better synthesizers. And if Bloom, Ben Bloom did that, good for him. Other questions? Um, so what, so what are you, what are you, let's see. If, if someone has a question and they want to, you can unmute yourself and just jump in. I do. Okay, go for it. Hi, uh, thank you so much. Um, I have a question, um, actually two really quick questions. I've been working with my grade five students and I wondered your thoughts on um, combining, I guess to both of you, Gary and to Howard, um, combining the idea of constructionism with the multiple intelligences theory and have the students work through creating something that uh, that speaks to themselves in, in terms, speaks to them as, um, you know, their intelligences. And also, um, if there's uh, one book of yours that you would prefer for educators to read or that you would like for them to read. The second one I can, I, I can, I can answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the discipline mind, which I mentioned earlier, um, and that might have an answer to your your first question too, because as I mentioned earlier, I talk about some important topics which you can approach through different kinds of intelligence. But uh, uh, Gary, I think you, you might want to. No, I, I I have to think about it a little bit. And what I'll say to, say to Marcia and to anyone else is, often after after we let you go, if people want to continue having conversation, um, we can kick some of those ideas around. If you want to if you want to stick around for the hang a little bit, maybe we can think about it a little bit more. Who else has a question? I certainly for... don't see any tension between yeah. constructivism, which is a, a a a notion that we understand things well when we have to um, take the initiative in defining and putting together uh, items rather than simply being given a fill in the blank kind of thing. Um, I don't see. I mean, I think multiple intelligences, as I said earlier, can be put to all sorts of uses, including ones which I don't like at all, but certainly I don't see any tension whatsoever. And while I wasn't an intimate of Seymour Papert, uh, certainly I mean, nobody ever felt that our ideas were antagonistic to one another. Absolutely. I've got a question. Go for uh, it. I'm wondering about um, students in class and whether or not there's the the need or the idea of running with the intelligence that they show the most ability with, or if there's the idea of trying to balance it out by assisting some of the ones that they might be more weak at. Like, 
you've heard that question before. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I have a, a stock answer, though. It's not it's an answer really directed more toward parents than toward teachers. Um, and the answer I give is that if you're pretty comfortable and you think that things are going to be all right with your offspring, then you should encourage them to um, be broad, to work in areas of weakness as well as areas of strength. If, on the other hand, you know, you're just off the boat from somewhere and it's very important that you be professionally successful, then you're going to want to focus on areas of strength. Um, when I think about it with reference to teachers, I certainly think that it's a big, big mistake to prematurely channel people. And that's why I love things like Scratch and Reggio Emilia, where you know, we've recognized that kids have a hundred languages of uh, and they should be encouraged to use them. But, uh, you know, life is short, and at a certain point, even if you're not obsessive, you probably are well off focusing on your strengths, because as I often say, if you're strong in something, you can help persons in that area, and they can help you in areas where you're not that strong. But you can also be obstinate. I have terrible visual capacities, but I decided to focus on visual arts, um, and I wrote my thesis on visual arts and I spent my life in the arts. I was on the board of the Museum of Modern Art. But at least I know I'm not good at it. And so I work harder. That's, that's, a, that's a judgment I make. Somebody, not something that was imposed on me by a well-meaning or sadistic parent or teacher. No, I'd like to say that school has an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. And, and 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 by doing that, the kids can can choose, you know, in the sort of terms, the parlance of Reggio Emilia, they can choose their project to to focus on to to, to develop. Um, I'm looking at. A I've got of, a I've got a go quick ahead. question, uh, if I could. Um, David, go ahead. Yes, uh, Chicks and Mehi's work on optimal experiences and his theories of flow states. Uh, I, I think that ties in a lot to both the MI uh, work and also to Gary's concept of of being passionately excited about something uh, because his perspective is that we will seek out those activities that get us into a state of flow. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Well, as you probably know, David, uh, we would, I've been a colleague and friend of Chick sent my hive for 40 years. I and, know. <laughs> and uh, I mentioned Bill Damon before. It was the three of us working together that gave me my life project for the last 25 years, understanding good work. Um, the, I think where, uh, uh, where, where, where Mike and I would be very much on the same page is it's worth a lot of effort to try to figure out where you get flow, and where as your teacher, your students um, get flow. But we would also agree, and Bill Damon would agree too, that you need to get flow from good kinds of things. I mean, bank robbers may get tremendous flow when they crack the safe. That's not something we want to we want to encourage. And I think the United States is in very perilous shape now, with probably more selfishness than any society since Rome. And it's part because, you know, we cultivate abilities and we look for flow, but we don't ask nearly enough 
what what good is this doing for the rest of society? So flow, like MI, is a it's a powerful concept which can be misused. I say Nelson oh, Mandela. Yeah, on. his first, as I recall, his first study was on Japanese motorcycle gangs, and so uh, point well made. Yeah. Terry Smith, you want to ask your question because I don't want to misinterpret it. Can you? I'm just reading it to chat. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, it's. I guess I'm going to use that word synthesis here that we started with. Um, Dr. Gardner was talking earlier about the some of the the young learners and a young person in your career when you're younger. You don't have a full scale of perspectives about how things are around you. You have what you've gathered at the moment. Um, and then jumping back then to some of Gary's comments about young learners and and the strengths that we start with when we work with that the idea of uh, and I'm a teacher educator by the way too. So um, the idea of looking at instead of multiple intelligences as somebody has this particular way of learning, which is what my student teachers all want to do. They want to label every kid as a certain kind of learner, like you said before, uh, verbal learner, uh, kinetic, all different kinds of things. But instead of that, I try to, I always try to make them talk about the perspectives that are out there of different approaches, whether it's mathematics or whether it's music or whether it's culture, whether it's something that's spatial. So not to not to take that strength and plant it in one area, but to possibly provide different perspectives for the young learners, maybe coming from your own skills or from, from other experts or other adults or wherever it comes from, but to have a perspective point of view instead of um, labeling that learner as a um, you know a visual learner or a certain kind of learner. So that was me trying to synthesize what I've done over time when I see teacher education students really ready to just lock into all kids are either this way or that way or that way or that way. So that's kind of me just synthesizing and a little blathering a little bit about some of the things that have already been said here tonight. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, um, probably if you, I mean, I don't know if this is kosher or not, but <laughs> if you try to put a label on your teaching students, uh, they probably wouldn't like it either uh, and say, well, you know, maybe we should respect our students the same way, but you have to do that carefully. And there's almost always an implied hierarchy as well, you know, that, of, well, he's a visual learner. It's always, they're, they're always, whatever the, whatever the, 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 the sort of less important one to the teacher is sort of takes on an inferiority air to it. Um, in, in your, in your, your recent work, you've been talking about the, the app generation and you make a, I thought, and I, I read it in the current book, you made an interesting distinction between app enabled and app dependent teens. I think, I think these folks might be interested in, in that distinction. And, sure. Um, um, this is work I did with, with Katie Davis, uh, now a decade ago. So we actually wrote a, uh, a blog, an op-ed which was published in the Seattle Times, uh, a few weeks ago about the app generation during the COVID, uh, crisis because, because Katie, uh, has studied that. But basically, I mean, we know, we all know, and probably those of us who aren't kids, uh, that it's very, tempting to you know, go from one app to the other 
throughout your, you know, your, your day. But uh, we found empirically that there's a big difference between individuals who use apps to do something more efficiently, but then put the machine away and explore on their own, as opposed to individuals who let one app dictate what the next app should be and who whose lives are basically formed by what some person at Apple knows about make a lot of money can get you to do. And we wanted to call attention to parents and teachers that uh, you need to model how, you know, it may be efficient to get from A to B using your GPS, but that doesn't mean that it's always that way you should go from A to B. There are reasons to do it another way. Uh, and it's not just when driving, it's in life as well. And what Katie found, and this is what the more recent article was, and this is very much in keeping with what we were talking about earlier, is that um, kids who um, already had an interest or a passion are much better able to deal with COVID than those who didn't. Um, uh, and it makes intuitive sense, but she actually went out and studied kids. In, in, I forget where, where she got the kids from, probably from in Seattle, but I don't know. Um, so, yeah, um, technology is a wonderful thing, but we don't want to be uh, enslaved by it. And um, that maybe brings me to the last thing I'm going to say, because it's, it's getting late here, is that... Um, in the beginning, uh, this evening, I pointed out that um, synthesizing, once you've defined a problem, you can have tremendous help in solving that problem by using technologies. But I believe as a human being, it's very important that we as humans should decide which problems to focus on. And similarly, when an app or a program or a um, AI uh, algorithm spits out an answer, we should take it seriously, but if it's something we don't think we should do or want to do, we should make a human judgment about that. And since I think most of the more analytic things that human beings do will be done in the future by um, programs better than we ever can, we need to preserve and to nurture those abilities which are, distinct, are distinctively human, and I think synthesizing is one of them. So with that, Gary, I think I'm thank you. Gonna... Thank you so much. I'll just point out one one thing you might you might find interesting related to that and music is a number of the professional musicians I know and 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 performing and um and art, teaching artists are reporting that you've seen all these videos of of you know bands, orchestras, or choirs recording solo parts and then assembling them into these YouTube videos and such. And what they've noticed is dramatic increases in the technical fluency of of the performers because when you sat in an ensemble before and you flubbed a note it's a sort of passed you by but now when you're sending the file to your friend who's assembling them there's there's a need for 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 correction and editing and and precision and and there the folks including people like Wynton Marsalis are, are saying that they're seeing sort of dramatic increases in technical skill of, among kids who are using apps to accompany the thing that they're that they're passionate about. And how about improvisation? It's harder because of the time lag, but there's some stuff that's happening technologically along those lines that's making it possible. 
Uh, there's a technology that allows you to to improvise with someone within or to play along with someone in real time who's within 50 miles of you. Beyond that, the physics gets messy. So right, well, I'm going to say thank you. And also, I'm thank you so much. I, I'm so indebted to you for this. This was lovely. I hope it wasn't too painful. Will you all join me in thanking Dr. Garter for spending his time with us? Yeah, I'm glad to see people communicating with one another. And if you continue, that's great. It's lovely. I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, HolisticMusicWorks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, live.constructingmodernknowledge.com. Be sure to visit cmkpress.com. That's cmkpress.com for books by creative educators for creative educators. Listen to all of our education conversations at your convenience. Visit live.constructingmodernknowledge.com or search for Constructing Modern Knowledge in iTunes.